his love endures forever. That's what we're celebrating as we uh, go through uh, this sermon series, the book of Psalms. Uh, thank you for being here this morning at Engage Boise. Oh, man, it's a wonderful day to be worshiping together in the Lord's house. I was talking to Zach, my friend, earlier. It's just a beautiful morning outside. This is the best time of year in Idaho as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I'm excited for everything that fall will bring in every way. I love the, the change of seasons. I love that people get back to their routine and they start coming to church again. Uh, as I said on Wednesday night, thank you uh, for making church a part of your routine. Um, bringing your family to church is something that can change the course of your life for the better forever, change the course of your kid's life, change the, the course of your unborn kid's life. You start to have it now. When the chips are down, it's going to pay off. So uh, thanks for being part of this church, making it into part of the rhythm of your life. Uh, at our church, we say this all the time. We believe that if we love the family, we can change the world. And if you don't have much family or maybe your family lives far away, well, our intention is that you will find some family here. And uh, we're grateful you joined us today. If I've never met you before, I'd love to shake your hand afterwards out there in the lobby. I'll be out there with my coffee probably. Uh, so I'd love to say thanks for coming. Uh, ask you where you came from today. Something I didn't cover in the regular announcements that's coming up in two Wednesdays that I want you to know about. We've got a worship night coming up. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, yeah, those, are the, those that are doing the woot woot, they were probably at the last one because um, the last one was awesome. And the Lord was here in a special way. What we do is we, we sing and we worship, but we plan, and we plan also for some space. We give the Lord some space to move and speak. Pastor Almeida's done a great job seeking the Lord. She's uh, planning some things out, and um, the Lord will be here. And I encourage you, even if you don't normally come on Wednesdays, come on that Wednesday night. We're going to sing a bunch. We're going to pray a bunch. We're going to come together, love on each other, love the Lord, worship him for who he is. Uh, uh, if you need the Lord to do something in your life, I encourage you to be here that night because he can do more in a moment when he's here than, than anything else. So please make plans to be a part. Uh, Wednesday, October 12th, uh, day after my birthday. So late birthday present to me. Get to sing a whole bunch of songs. It's going to be awesome. Uh, our hope, I know I'm announcing a lot of stuff. Our hope is not to just uh, do a bunch of events just for the sake of being busy. Uh, but we want to give you ways that make it easy to bring someone to church. Uh, someone in your neighborhood, someone at your work. We want to give you ways where you can bring someone to church. Uh, and you don't have to do the heavy lifting. Just invite them to an event we're having. If they like music or they like candy for the trunk or treat, man, invite them to church and just allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. Today, uh, we're heading into the second of four psalms that we're going to study over the next little while. And what I'm finding out is that in most of these, it's going to take two weeks to do them justice, uh, such is the case with this psalm that we're going to be tackling this week, uh, Psalm 25 is where we'll be. If you'd like to turn your Bibles there, flip your devices, however. The last couple of weeks, the first two of this series, we were in Psalm 139. And we spent uh, this last couple of weeks talking about how God knows us. And that when we follow God, he will always lead us home. No matter where we run, he will always find us. You can't run so far, God can't find you. No matter how bad it gets, he's never far. Because his proximity depends on his goodness and not ours. That means no matter how good, how bad we are, he's always near. If that sounds interesting to you, uh, I'd encourage you to go check out the podcast or uh, check out the video on YouTube or Facebook. The podcast is on all your favorite podcasting service things. Uh, today we're headed into another psalm written by David, Psalm 25. And we know that it's written by David because it says right there in the superscription, 
That's a fancy word for the title right above the chapter. So, uh, you know, in your Bible, it probably says Psalm 25, and it says, of David. Not all of them, the Psalms, claim an author like this. In fact, we're going to do one during this series that is not written by David. Uh, But what it doesn't have is this indication of exactly when it was written. However, we do know one thing, and that is that this psalm was written when David was in some kind of trouble. You know, in our lives, there's big questions we got to ask and problems we're going to face. For example, why did it take Boise State so long to switch their offense and put the other quarterback in? I see, I have written down how did Boise State's offense get so bad, but I had to cross it out because it changed before, <laughs> since I wrote this. Seriously, though, there's big questions in our life. Uh, the stage we're in in our lives, it really determines the questions that we're asking. When we're young, right? When you're young, you're a teenager, a college kid, the big problem and question is who am I going to marry? Right? We ask this question and we think, man, if I can just answer this one, everything's going to be gravy from there. How many of you know that once you answer that question, you've only just scratched the surface and there's about 100 million more questions that you're going to ask every single day the rest of your life. And they're all good. But that's the question I was asking. Who, who am I going to marry? Get married and there's talk about kids. And at first, the big question or problem is something like, what color should we paint the nursery in the baby's room? Boy or girl, should we do neutral? No matter. That way, if it's either one, it can be fine. We use it for multiple kids. Does it need to be Star Wars themed? Does it need to be My Little Pony? You know, whatever. By the time you have like a second kid, you're like, whatever is going to make us sleep the most, that's what I want to do. If it's blackout, <laughs> that's what we need to do. At least that's how it was with my kids. <clears throat> the, my kids, uh, the worst sleepers ever, I think. Uh, but even those conversations, those pale in comparison. Uh, to some of the other challenges that we face, the challenges we face in our faith, and wondering how to exist in this culture we're in, where every decision and every word, every thought seems to be supercharged. Man, you better be careful what you say. Better be careful what you say, because in 10 years, uh, someone might go back and find it and think you're insensitive. Many, many, many people face challenges in their health or in the health of their family, Something I've seen firsthand, the longer that Chandra and I pastor the church, we'll always see this in ministry, but especially the past year, it's just that everybody has big stuff going on. If you talk to someone and they tell you there's no big stuff going on, their big thing is that they don't know how to tell the truth. Everybody has big stuff going on. And the question isn't, will we face things that are difficult? The question is, how will we react when we face things that are difficult? There's this really uh, great wise philosopher, this boxer named Mike Tyson. And he once said something like, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So true. And David, as he writes this psalm, he's facing something. We don't know what it is. It could be something brought on by someone else. He faced plenty in his life where that was brought on by someone else. And it could be something that he's brought upon himself. So this would fit many places in the life of David. Um, We spent uh, a whole bunch of last fall talking about David. This could have fit when David was running from Saul and pretending to be insane just to survive. Go read in 1 Samuel. He was running from Saul. He killed Goliath, but he'd come back, and the people had sung the song, uh, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, and Saul was jealous and wanted to kill him. 
And his only choice was to run. And he ended up in a Philistine city. And he had to pretend that he was insane just to survive. But it could have been also when he was covered in shame because of his own sin with Bathsheba. And subsequently how he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Could have been written when his once proud kingdom was crumbling around him at the end of his life. When his favorite son, Asaph, was stabbing in the back and trying to take his kingdom. The point is that no matter where the struggle that we face comes from, Psalm 25 can speak to us. Whether your hard things are brought on by your own choices or just by the way that life is, Psalm 25 can speak to us. I've been studying uh, over this for the last little while, and I've been planning on fitting this one in for several weeks. This was like the first one I wrote down, actually. And I ran across this idea in a commentary, and it kind of centers around this, the whole psalm. And that is, no, no matter the reason for the hard situation, David gives us a great example. That example is that in our hardest times, we must avoid denial and proclaim dependence on God. Write that down. We must avoid denial and proclaim dependence upon God. In other words, when our life gets hard and we aren't sure where to turn, we have to look up. Let's read together our text uh, for this morning. Uh, Psalm chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading to you this morning out of the NIV. Psalm 25 of David. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord, and teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in his ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. In this next couple weeks, we're going to go over this psalm a little more verse by verse than we usually do on a Sunday morning. And this one just lends itself to that a little bit better. Just so you know, it's going to look a little different the next couple weeks. And we are going to look out for David doing those, one of those two things we just talked about. Avoiding denial and proclaiming his dependence upon God. Verse 1 and, and the beginning of verse 2 there. In you, Lord, I, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. We see the beginning of this psalm that David, a man after God's own heart, right? He does something extremely important. Before he ever talks about his requests, and he has them, we're going to see him. Before talking about his requests, he proclaims his trust in God. So God, I trust you. And he answers this question that all of us must answer. We, we talked a minute ago about some questions. And there are some questions you answer more than once. In fact, the big ones, you answer at some point, but you continue to answer them every single day. Many decisions we make about our everyday life uh, are these kind of decisions. For example, if you decide, if we decide uh, that, I'll point the finger at myself, if we decide that we're going to live a more healthy lifestyle, there's some big picture concepts involved in that decision of being more healthy. That seems like it's everywhere. I'm no expert, but 
I do know that to be healthy, in many cases, it revolves around a couple things. It revolves around how much exercise we get, right? That's one thing. And then how many calories we take in. That's another thing. And my sister, she's not here today. She's a dietitian, and she would tell me it's much more complicated than that. But I, I need the simple version. And often, something triggers that decision, right? Something triggers the decision of I need to be more healthier, I need to lose weight. Sometimes it's just a number on a scale. You haven't stepped on it in a while, and you step on it, and you're like, ooh, is that right? Is this thing broken? <laughs> Sometimes what triggers it is uh, not being able to do something that you could do before. Uh, I mentioned my birthday's coming up. I'm about to turn 43, and there are days when I go to uh, play basketball with the young guys, and my body does not respond the way I wish it would. Sometimes it's a day on the calendar that triggers it. It's January 1st. January 1st comes, and for some reason, all of us are like, oh, I need to make a change. It's a new year. It's a, this day means I need to make a change. And I'm not saying that we don't make the decision with conviction. We make that decision one time. We make it with conviction. We're like, man, I'm going to lose five pounds. I'm going to do better at this sport. I'm going to be more healthy for my family. All those are good things. You make the decision one time, but then for that decision to ring true, we got to make the decision each day. I have this little example for you. Many of you are probably wondering, why is there a can of soda sitting back there? Well, I'll explain it to you. What we have here is a, a can of Coke Zero. In my opinion, this is the only type of diet soda that is drinkable, as far as how it tastes, if it's cold. Uh, this one's here because our, our network superintendent, uh, when we had a, a conference here, he left some of this here. So, um, No regular soda. So I don't know how long ago it was. Uh, a while ago, I decided... Uh, that I, I, I really came from playing basketball. I was playing basketball with these uh, guys that I play with a couple times a week, and they're younger than me, and I just could not do what I wanted to do anymore. So, of course, I went and stepped on the scale, and I had that experience I talked about a minute ago. I was like, ooh, boy, that's, that number's higher than I want it to be. So I started investigating. I talked to my sister who's a dietitian, you know, where the calories come from, where the sugar comes from, and I've always been someone that loves soda, not necessarily for the sugar. I just like the carbonation, the way it tastes, Right? Can I get an amen? Anyone like the carbonation? Sweet. I'm not alone. So I started investigating, right? And uh, I've told you before, I like to buy these things, uh, melty sodas at the gas station. You go take your cup in there, fill it up for 99 cents, or you go to McDonald's, whatever, get your cup filled up over and over again. And I started looking at, like, how many calories are in one big cup of, like, regular Coke? It's like five or 600, right, depending on how much ice you put in there. And I'm thinking, man, I go to eat, and I fill that thing up like three or four times. No wonder I gained 10 pounds, right? So I decided, you know what? I'm, I think the thing is I need to cut regular soda out of my life. Now, the, one of the problems was uh, most of the diet soda tastes terrible. Like I said, Coke Zero is the only kind I like. The problem is they don't have it everywhere. So at first, what would happen is I would go to a place, and I'd be like, oh, do they have Coke Zero? No, okay, I'll just go with regular Coke. Go ahead and have 2,000 calories worth of soda, you know, while I'm eating. <laughs> so I made the decision once, but it got to the point where I had to make the decision every time I walked in to a restaurant or, or a gas station or whatever. If they don't have something I like that doesn't have, you know, zero sugar, I'm going to have to have iced tea or water or something like that. I had to make the decision uh, every single day. And for me, making that decision every single day, at least at this point in my life where my metabolism is, it equals 10 pounds. If I drink a regular uh, soda, I weigh a certain amount. If I drink Coke Zero instead, uh, I weigh 10 pounds less. That's the way it works. The only 
uh, concession I make sometimes is I will mix Coke and Diet Coke together. Sometimes I'll do that. But what I'm saying is you make a decision with conviction, then you got to make it over and over again. The important ones, at least. And David, he does something similar here. You see, by calling something or someone Lord or God, we're saying that it's what everything else in our life bows to. When you say, uh, this is Lord over my life, that means everything else is underneath it. By writing down these words, David, he places God on the throne of his life. I would venture a guess that many of us in this place, we've made a decision at some point to place God on the throne of our lives. We've said, Lord, you're in charge of my life, I give it to you. But can I submit to you that placing God on the throne of our lives is a decision that we must make every single day? Those that have been serving the Lord longer than I have will tell you every single day, 50, 55 years, we make the decision to place the Lord on the throne of our life every single day. And when the going gets tough, we got to ask, who or what do our actions prove our dependence on? I'm not saying that you get resaved each day. I'm not saying you, like, make one mistake. Oh, man, I better go ask forgiveness so I can go to heaven in case I get hit by a bus. That's not the thing. We're just asking the question, what do our words and actions prove that we actually bow to? I can say one thing, but what do my daily decisions, what do they prove that I bow to? And that's what David does here when he says, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. In the second half of verse 2 and 3, we see the first mention of the trouble that David faces. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Here we see David, he's worried about something. I think we can identify with this. David is worried about something that all of us are often worried about. In fact, the New Living Translation, that's the one I'm kind of reading each day uh, right now. Uh, It phrases it this way. It says, do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. In fact, sometimes if we're super 100% honest, we don't mind defeat as long as someone that we don't like doesn't see it happen. David's about to get to the more godly reason for writing this down in verse 3. But first, he's honest about something that he's feeling, which is, man, I hope that dirty dog across the way does not get the last laugh. All of us feel that sometimes. David does something that we can learn from, though. Before he makes the request of God, he says to God, I trust you. And what that says to me, because of the order he put it in, is that David, he's not taking matters into his own hands, but he's allowing God to bring him the victory. I believe that because David looks up and he starts verse 2 with that declaration, Lord, I trust in you, that just as we talked about last week, his heart identifies with God's heart. And because David's heart is synced up with God's heart, at this point in his life at least, He knows what he says in verse 3 is true, and that is, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. So right there, we see both those themes that we mentioned before. David doesn't deny that he hopes his enemies lose. He's being honest about what his heart's feeling. But he also proclaims his dependence upon God. In the second half of verse 3, David, he proclaims uh, something that if we are following God, it can give us great hope. 
I take comfort in this, and that's this. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. We all run into people who they seem to be doing well, prospering, and we don't understand why because we think they're not good people. And if we run into people like that in our life where there's people in power over us who are dishonest without reason, then the Bible is clear. Disgrace and shame, it will come to them. And what this means is that we, as his people, we can focus on what God has called us to do. And we can trust God to bring the disgrace to those who are dishonest. Now, sometimes, and it's probably really satisfying when this happens, sometimes God will use a human to bring the disgrace. But it is up to him who it is and when it happens and how it happens. One of the best parts about it being set up this way is that it's possible, you see, it is possible for a human to deceive another human. Therefore, we're probably not fit to be the judge. No matter how discerning you are, no matter how well you think you read people, it's possible for all of us to be deceived. Therefore, we're probably not fit to be the judge. But it is not possible for someone to trick God, no matter how much they think they may be doing so. You ever run into someone who thinks they're fooling God? Maybe you've been the person that thinks they're fooling God. <laughs> My hand's raised. This is the reason that instead of focusing on those around us who may be treacherous, we can look up and we can allow God to do what he wants to do. Also, as an aside, this is just kind of a short side road. This helps us understand, I think the way this is written and worded, it helps us understand the gray areas of life a little. There aren't many causes for treachery, but they do exist. Remember it said in there, treacherous without cause, right? So if your, your family is in danger, and you need to uh, not tell the truth to save them. Or if you are uh, in a military and you're off at war and you have to be deceptive or treacherous to save your own life, to win for your cause. But if we're being dishonest without cause, simply because it suits us, that will bring shame. God will bring shame on the, those who are treacherous without cause. Verse four and five, we see David's dependence on God and his refusal to deny his own condition. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all the day long. Verse 4, man, it contains this powerful admission that if we are going to place God on the throne of our lives each day, we must be able to say to God, show me the right path. Point out the road for me to follow, Lord. Has anyone here ever been lost, like really, truly lost? I mean, the directional sense, not the life sense, just really lost. A few of you are willing to admit it. I think to be lost, you really have to have, again, I'm talking physically lost. Uh, I think to be truly lost, you need a couple factors. One is that you, for some reason, have not ended up where you intended to go. Right? That's the first thing. But two, to be truly lost, you have to be unfamiliar with the area to be really, really lost. So for me personally, and I'm sure for most of you, it would be tough to be really lost in Boise, Idaho, anywhere in the Treasure Valley, really. I've grown up here, started driving here. You know, that's just that kind of a deal. I'm sure it's that way for many of you. But part of the reason is because my dad used to give me vague directions on purpose so I would learn my way around. I don't think he gave me wrong ones, but he gave me bad ones, and if I got lost, it was fine with him. 
Uh, we used to, when I had hair, we used to get our hair cut at this place downtown, and uh, we lived out in Cuna, and my dad, she was always moving her shop. It was always on a different one-way street, and uh, now it's fine down there. I don't have a problem getting around, but man, it was so confusing as a 16, 17-year-old driving my 86 Blazer, right? I wanted to worry about the, the radio buttons. I didn't want to worry about the one-way streets, right? But my dad would give me these directions, and the street numbers are hard to see down there, and Many times, I get hopelessly turned around. I always knew where I was because I knew where the mountains were. You know, I thought I could find my way to the freeway and get home if I had to. But I was never really lost. To be really lost, you've got to be in an unfamiliar city. And I know for uh, some of you younger people, this is not making sense because you're like, dude, do you have a phone? Have you ever heard of Google Maps? Yes, I've heard of Google Maps, okay? Just if you're here and you're younger, there was a time when you didn't have a map in your hand all the time. You had to have a paper map with you. Yeah, paper map. So if you're here and you don't remember that time, just pretend your battery died. You have no charger, okay? <laughs> so to be really lost, you have to have ended up somewhere you hadn't intended, and the larger area has to be unfamiliar. And for most people, the final sign that you're really, really lost, especially for men, right, is you finally give up and you ask for directions. <laughs> I'll never, ever forget. I went on this uh, ski trip when I was in college to Vancouver. This was pre, uh, there were cell phones, but definitely no, you know, Google Maps or anything like that. Uh, I went on this ski trip with my friend's church to, to Vancouver. We were going to Whistler. I love to ski. And it was my chance to go to Whistler and ski for two days. And uh, on the, we had, uh, we'd set up this, it was all college kids, and we'd set up this system where we had those walkie-talkies that worked for like a mile or a mile and a half, you know. And uh, we got to the border, and there was a long line of cars, and uh, we got separated from the people, so we had this thing of printed out directions. I don't know if we lost it or if we couldn't follow them, but anyway, we got hopelessly lost in the middle of Vancouver. I've only been, been to Vancouver a couple times, and this was one of them, and man, I was the most lost I've ever been in my life. I had no idea where I was, nowhere, no idea where to go next, couldn't see the mountains, it was dark, you know, Vancouver's a big city. And uh, we were just getting more and more and more lost. We'd try the walkie-talk every once in a while, see if we could find the people we're supposed to be following. No dice. So uh, finally, I'm like, man, I'm going to have to ask for directions. I have no idea where I'm going in this unfamiliar place. So we found a gas station. Get out of the car. Immediately, I'm talking within five seconds, I feel a tap on my shoulder. Turn around. Some guy says, hey, you got any pop? And, you know, no, I do not. Came from a Christian college. I don't have that on me, you know. I go in this gas station to ask this uh, gas station attendant for directions, and I walk up to the counter, and he's reading a newspaper. I walk up, and he just keeps reading the newspaper. And I say, hey, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah, hang on. And he just keeps on reading the newspaper. <laughs> Fortunately, that guy had mercy on me. I'd probably be living in Vancouver to this day because I never would have survived it. We eventually found our way there. We got to Whistler, and then on the way back... <laughs> We were driving, me and my two friends, Jeremy and Lance, who we just big sports nuts, and we were playing this nerdy sports game where, one, college sports game, where one person would name a school and the other person would name the mascot. So, like, I would say Boise State and they would say Broncos, right? And you would try and find, think of one they didn't know. Well, we got so uh, just engrossed in playing this game that a couple hours later we looked up, we're like, where are we? This is, we should have been to the border by now, <laughs> right? Eventually, we find a border cross, and we find out, man, we're halfway across Washington, like between Seattle and Spokane. We've driven, like, hundreds of miles that we didn't need to drive. 
terribly lost. And the reason was, uh, didn't know where we were, and also the area was unfamiliar. See, a long story to get to this. You see, every single one of us, when we accept Christ, part of keeping God on the throne of our lives is finding the path that he has for us. But finding God's path, it requires two things. One of those things is being able to admit that you're lost. To find God's path, we have to be able to say, Lord, I'm lost. And the other thing we have to be able to do to find God's path is we have to admit that he has a better way than we have. Now, for many of us, it's not easy to admit that we don't know the way on our own. It's not easy to admit that it's possible that we need someone else's help, that we need God's help to find our way out of the deep canyon we found ourselves in. You know that uh, once you find that when you get lost, it happens gradually and not suddenly, right? You don't make one turn and be like, man, I'm lost. It's, It's usually a while of wandering. And when we realize that we can't find our way back on our own, that's when we proclaim our dependence upon God. And the reality is that all of us are lost. And there isn't one person that can find their way back on their own. All of our hearts are lost without the grace of Jesus. And you can't find your way back on your own. Fortunately, though, there's a good father. And there's a foolproof way to find the path, even when we are hopelessly, terribly lost. And it has everything to do with the type of heart that David exhibits in writing this next chapter. Or next verse, sorry. Verse 5, guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God and my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. No matter how hopeless our situation may feel, how lost we may get, how low the valley may seem. Our hope is in him all the day long. And the great thing is that it tells us right here the way to God's path. The way to God's path uh, is through his truth. And his truth, a little farther on in Psalm, Psalm 119, 105, it tells us this. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So indeed, friends, when it's dark and we're really, really far from where we meant to be, we will not find our way out. Unless there's light. And the light for our, eat, our feet is God's divine word that's given to us right here. And when we decide to look up, we decide to proclaim our dependence on God, that's when we begin to find our hope in him. We see uh, next in verse 6 and verse 7, this willingness on David's part to avoid denying the sinfulness of his own heart. Verse 6 and 7, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. David remembers it, uh, in verse 6 that in the past, God has shown great mercy to his people. And that God made a covenant with the Israelites. David, he could have been calling on the first five books of the Bible in Exodus 34, uh, verse 6 and 7. I think we have it on the screen for you. Um, I didn't mark it in my Bible, so i got to find it here. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Uh, here it is. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You got the next slide there, so I'm reading it up from back there on you guys. I got it here. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is during this scripture that we just read. That's during the second time that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Did you know, some of you may not remember that God had to give them to him two times, right? Gave them to him once, came down, got mad, smashed him, had to go back and get him again. And David is saying, God, I know that you've been gracious to us over and over again. You're gracious and compassionate. And so in this moment, God, because I know you've been gracious before, would you be gracious to me? And you see, one of the wonderful things about God's forgiveness on the screen there is that it changes the way the light shines on our lives. Think about it in terms of the way we take uh, good photographs. I'm not a good photographer at all. I take the phone out. I hit the button. That's all I do. But I have been around some good photographers. And the quality of the picture has everything to do with the quality of the light. The picture they're trying to take, the light has to be just right. I, I've mentioned to you, I think it was last week, our friend Megan, who can do things with a camera in a setting I've never, ever seen anyone do. And uh, we, she always takes our family pictures. And we've been a couple of times with her where we, we meet at a certain time. A lot of times it's out here in the foothills. And, and uh, we take some pictures, and she's like, you know what, just wait for five minutes. Because she can see the sun going down, and she can see the way the clouds are, and she knows the light's going to be just right for the photo she wants to take. See, the quality of the picture has everything to do with the quality of the light. And in our lives, having a pure heart before God, it has everything to do with the power and the purity of God's light. And when God's light shines on us, it leads us directly out of the darkness. But it's so key that we do exactly what David does here, that we don't deny the sins of our youth, that we don't deny the fact that we need a Savior. We have to admit, Lord, I need you. That each day of our lives, we place them on the throne and we look up. So what you might be saying is, you know what, John, this all sounds great. But how does it really affect my life? You read me a bunch of verses. How does it affect my life? Well, verses 8 through 10, they tell us exactly what happens when we allow God's word to light our path. Psalm 25, 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them in his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. You see, friends, because God is good, he instructs sinners in his ways. Because God is good, he instructs me and he instructs you in his ways. And I love that phrase and the way it's written there because it tells me that because God is good, it takes all the power out of my hands. There is nothing that I can do to make God any more good. He is good because that's who he is. There is nothing that I can do to make myself any more worthy of forgiveness. And whether or not God forgets the sins of our youth and every other one up to this moment and after, that's something that only happens because he is good. Now we do see, we see this all over the Bible. There is certainly blessing in living the way that God asks us to throughout his word. It matters that we live the way God asks us to live, that we live our life in a way that's upright. 
We see a little bit of that in verse 9. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them in his way. What the Bible tells us here, that one of the keys to knowing what is right, to knowing his way, it's written down right here, is to be humble. And man, this is counter to what the world teaches, as far as I see it. What the world teaches is that the way to knowledge is harder work and higher position, more influence. But what God teaches us is that to know his way and ultimately what is right, we must have a heart that is humble. You see, looking up, it requires a heart that is submitted to the ways of God. Finally, in verse 10, we have this statement and we have a result. You're going to run into a lot of people in your life, if you haven't already, that they will say the Bible is subjective. But the more I read it, the more I see black and white statements like this verse. The ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep his covenant. You see, friends, uh, the blessings of God tend to increase as our reliance upon him increases. And there is churches... And people that will tell you, you know what, doesn't matter how, what you do, as long as you accept Jesus, say the prayer, you're good to go. But what it says here and all over the Bible is the blessings of God tend to increase as our reliance on him increases. And I'm not saying, no one is telling you that it's easy to reject the ways of the world. No one is saying that it's easy to be humble instead of proud. No one is saying that it's easy to be truthful instead of being deceptive. No one is saying that it's easy to treat your enemies with kindness instead of uh, with retaliation. These are all commands in the Bible, by the way. No one is saying that it's easy to work hard instead of be lazy. But what the Bible is saying is the riches of God's faithfulness, they outshine any reward that we can put in a bank account, post on a status, put in a prominent place in your home. The riches of God's faithfulness, they outshine all of that. What David is telling us here, what we'll continue to see next week in Psalm 25 is that God is calling us to look up. The question we got to answer is who is on the throne of our lives? This day and every day going forward. Psalm 25 is going to tell us as we go forward that when we choose to live in a way that proclaims our dependence upon God, And we don't deny that we are sinners who need a Savior. We can do that, that God's faithfulness knows no end. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Uh, I want to give all of you a chance to place God on the throne of your life. Now, many of those in this place would say that's something they've done before. We don't want to go many services without giving people a chance to put God on the throne of their life. So if you're here this morning, maybe you've heard the gospel before, but this is the first time that it's made sense to you, the first time that uh, your heart has been moved, this morning is your chance to put God on the throne of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've known the Lord before. Maybe you, uh, you know him walking into this place, but you also know uh, there's some things that he needs to be on the throne over and he's not right now. So this morning, if you're here, you need to accept Christ for the first time. Become a Christian. Um, If you're here and you say, yeah, I know the Lord, but he's not on the throne of everything. If either of those things are you, when I count to three, would you just raise your hands so we can pray together? One, two, 
three. Awesome, thank you. Here's what we're going to do. All of us in this place, we're going to sing just a little bit in a moment, but uh, all of us in this place, uh, we're going to repeat a prayer. And we do this just uh, accepting Christ into our heart. If, if uh, it's not something you need to, uh, you feel like God's on the throne of your life, when you repeat this prayer, uh, you're just agreeing with those around you. So everyone in the place, would you say, Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Today, I believe in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Today, I place you on the throne of my life. Everything bows at your feet. Today, I accept you into my heart. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. And we're going to sing just a little bit of this song. I'm so glad I met Jesus. If you prayed that for the first time, maybe um, you rededicate your life. Let's just sing it uh, this morning.